episode 381 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, our families, our clients, our friends, even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup today, Dave Itell, information security specialist and founder of the Itell Foundation, Maury Shank, who's a London-based lawyer and technologist, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. Uh, Maury, you have followed a lot of Chinese investment and legal topics. The FCC basically took away China Telecom's ability to provide local phone service, long-distance phone for service, for that matter, in the United States this week. Any surprises there? Well, not politically, but I think legally. I mean, this Section 214 of the Communications Act of 1934 was originally a big deal. And over the time, even over the 30 years I've practiced, it's gradually become a pretty perfunctory process. China Telecom has had this authorization for 20 years, and it, it really hasn't been used for, it's used to exclude operators who are unfit, which I guess is what the FCC is now saying and DOJ might be saying, but it's a pretty surprising use of 214. It's usually a pretty low hurdle. And, you know, using this to smack China, China starts to starts to feel a little bit like trade war. You know, I think the bullies are beyond calling names and maybe are starting to butt but show about chests or something like that? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, although, no, yes and no. It feels like a trade war, except the, the U.S. was essentially unilaterally disarmed in this trade war. There are no American companies that have licenses to do in China what uh, China Telecom has a license to do in the United States. So in at, at one level, this was, uh, as uh, one former president has said, easy to win because China, the Chinese government had no reciprocal measure that they could take to show their displeasure. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, the Trump administration got tough on China and I was no fan of the Trump administration, but that was one of the things where I think they got it right-ish, at least. The, the terms of trade are not equal between the U.S. and China, and it's been mutually beneficial. But at this point, I think the U.S. is waking up to that not being the the case so much. And yeah, we'll, we'll see more actions like this. I, I think that's right. I mean, this was sort of overdetermined. The Trump administration started this process and the Biden administration is finishing it. The FCC vote was four to nothing. So all of the commissioners jumped on the bandwagon. And the Justice Department reported that China Telecom hadn't been candid with them uh, in some of its statements, which would be the kiss of death here. So lots and lots of reasons to take away the license. And I actually, I will say, this, is, this was a low hurdle for a while, but when the Communications Act of, I guess, 33 was written, one of the clear things they wanted to be clear about was we don't want foreign-owned communications unless we have approved the particular country that they're coming from. So there is a, a long-standing policy of wanting to conduct a kind of national review before people come to provide services, uh, whether it's broadcasting or telecommunications services in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, although foreign ownership is generally handled under a different section of the Communications Act, Section 310, and 214 is usually sort of 
more general fitness to provide service. But I agree with you that with some of the evidence of misrepresentation by China Telecom, there was a basis to, to, to take away the 214. So I, Dave, I want to ask you about this story because it is another China story and it's got the Justice Department in it. The FBI and the Justice Department did a raid on a Chinese point of sale company warehouse in the United States, Pax Technology. And it was covered by Krebs from a local uh, news report. But it does sound as though they're saying that the point of sale technology that was being sold was being used in a variety of ways to, to launch attacks and also to run command and control on attacks in ways that led the Justice Department to think that maybe the company was complicit in that use of their technology. That would be a big deal, wouldn't it? Well, it would be a huge deal, but I also don't think necessarily that our natural instinct to say that that is the narrative is correct. The FBI hasn't come out and said, we suspect PAX Technologies of really anything. It may right. be that they didn't trust PAX Technologies, who has a huge office in you know my lovely Florida, up in Jacksonville. Yep. So it may be that they just didn't suspect PAX Technologies would cooperate with them properly. They, right. they may not that, be attending. That's easy to do. Right? So, right. They... they they could easily have said, let's not take a chance. We'll just go in with a, uh, as though it's a raid and treat it like a hostile, like a suspect until we've done enough uh, investigation to know that they're really just a witness to somebody else's misdeeds. And, and, and the difficult thing here is that we're getting a lot of sort of back and forth flack from both, you know, the reporting and from PAX Technologies themselves who have, who have re resumed trading and have issued their own press release where they directly talked about some of the allegations. And one of the weird, there's like some weird technical data in the allegations of, you know, one company noticed that there was data going back and forth that was encrypted, but didn't match any particular sizes for packets that they would understand. And PAX right. Technologies came back and said, look, these are Android terminals and they could be doing any number of Androidy things, updating software, doing telemetry or who knows what they're doing. It's Android. And so I don't know if that's them covering for themselves. I don't know if they have a complicitness right. to it. I mean, I have no reason to believe that they do based on what's ahead of us. So I think it's, it's, it's one of those stories where this is such a huge company. Like, they're massive. They're in 120 company, countries. They have, you know, access, obviously, to payment information for basically everybody. And they basically know everything about everybody. So if they were dirty, it would be a huge story. But we have nothing on that yet. And I think it's a good example of a story that you have to keep an eye on. But you can't go too far ahead of the information you actually have. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. It's what I suspected looking at it, that, that there might be more to this story. And we'll find out, presumably, at some point, although it could be a long time. The Justice Department is not known for stopping investigations in the middle and saying, by the way, these guys, we don't suspect of a crime. So we may sit here for three years before we find out what was behind that raid. All right, See, David, here's another topic I really wanted to talk to you about, and we haven't covered it, probably because it still hasn't passed, but the House Intelligence Committee has been responding to the 
Project Raven stories by adopting a piece of legislation. This is now just in the House Intelligence Authorization Bill. It's not in the Senate, which essentially says, if you remember, Project Raven was three former intelligence community folks who went to work at the United Arab Emirates, first for a U.S. company, and then when the U.S. company left for a UAE company, doing essentially hacking as a service. And as the as you might expect, first the U.S. company and then the persons were gradually pressured and vagal, sweet-talked into doing more and more stuff that the UAE wanted that the U.S. government might have frowned upon. And they ended up indicted and arriving at a, at a delayed prosecution agreement. And the House Intelligence Committee has said, we never want to see this happen again. They've adopt a piece, adopted a provision that says, if you work in the intelligence agent, in it for an intelligence agency for the next more or less three years after you leave, you cannot work in a security capacity for any foreign government or foreign government subsidized company. And lots of records are going to be kept and all the agencies are going to supposed to enforce human rights rules, which they're going to have no idea how to do. But there's a criminal provision now that says if you uh, take those jobs, it's a felony. So it's a potentially very big deal for at least the people who do this work or pretty much any other work that involves intelligence sources and methods inside the agency. I know you've got strong views on this. So I figured I would let you uh, comment on the HIPSI legislation. I, I, I always have strong opinions. You know that. But in particular, <laughs> I think one thing that you, I think, mentioned in one of your other podcasts uh, or panel was that this has strong bipartisan support. And it's, of course, it's really hard to push back against stuff like this, where it's sort of like the Project Raven report was very damning. And Adam Schiff, very smart, says, you know, like, we we explicitly don't want this happening again, right? Like, who would want it to mm -hmm. happen again? That's obvious. But I think the time to push back on it is now because the actual law that they're suggesting is extremely broad. So they aren't just talking a small set of executive intelligence members. They're talking anyone who realistically has contractor or any other kind of access to this sensitive information in the intelligence community. So huge broad swath of people affected, huge broad swath of restrictions because the companies that you're restricted from sort of servicing or uh, being employed by are realistically any company that has a large amount of foreign investment or foreign government investment. And I think what's not well known within the government is that a lot of companies are sort of held by holding companies that have foreign government investment in them. And it's a very common way for even an American company right. to have. So, and, and, and also that a lot of the jobs that, you know, even a, a standard line employee would do from the intelligence community, you would go out and become a contractor, a consultant that does penetration testing or any of the number of things that you would be excluded from that market. The, the primary market, in some cases, that your job has trained you to do, you would be excluded from that market because no big consulting company can hire 
a talented individual that they can't put on contracts for, you know, go assess the web application that this random bank has, right? So like a lot of banks are 20% owned by foreign countries. I don't want to mention any specific right. names, but let's, they're brand names. Let's put it that way. So it's very broad. It's very broadly applied. It's very broadly subjective. And I think it also doesn't address any of the real risks that aren't already covered. So we already have RICO law. We have classification and clearance laws. We have ITAR if you absolutely need it. We're going to have the new, essentially, O'Day law for coming from the Export Commerce Department. Oh, the intrusion software. Intrusion software is uh, coming out. Controls, yes. You got like four very applicable laws that already cover 99.999% of the risk that you have. And I want to talk a little bit about something that Adam Schiff said, which he said, people in the intelligence community develop skills necessary to protect our country against foreign bad actors. And that intellectual property really belongs to the United States. And I'm like, what intellectual property? Because almost everything you can do that... Well, Mimi Cats. Wasn't, wasn't Mimi Cats developed right here in the United States? I'm sure it was. <laughs> Actually, I thought it was French. But like... It's, it is, I think it is French. Right? Like <laughs> almost everything you're going to learn, you're going to learn probably from like an external contractor. There are some things, like very specific things that you learn that are mostly irrelevant to future work. So I would say... It's just not true. It's not true that you get like this body of knowledge at the NSA or any government agency that you wouldn't have gotten at NCC Group or, you know, Symantec or any of the other big, you know, Pricewaterhouse. I'll just name a few. Those companies do penetration testing. Right. It is hacking. It's the same thing. So what you don't typically do as a penetration tester is like sit on a box for six months and like watch everything that happens and then like make big charts about, you know, doing analysis, doing foreign language and cultural like, but again, I, I just don't see that as our issue. And as a final point, almost all of the losses strategically that you're going to have for one of these programs, for any kind of signals intelligence program based on cyber, is going to be because people left to go work at one of the big software vendors, Microsoft, Google, Apple, Facebook, whatever it takes. That's where you really bleed sort of your, your strategic talent. And they know how right. to, you know, protect themselves from you now, right? Like whether or not they really use classified information, they know what the risks are. They, they have an understanding. They're senior people. That's the real, you know, historically, there's a reason Microsoft has such a huge office next to GCHQ, it wasn't just because there were good people there. So right, it's it's so they 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 can figure out. So without ever asking for classified information, they just say what kind of good security should we have if we're worried about anybody who might be attacking us? And everybody knows that's code for the people you used to work for. A hundred percent. And again, a lot of these companies feel like you know every government is the same to them when it comes to a threat. But here's my theory on a solution for this law, because I have been thinking about it, and you might think this is terrible. My theory is, take the criminal stuff out of it. Don't make it a criminal thing. Make it purely about reporting, so you can start assessing your risks. Take the foreign stuff out of it, too. Don't, I, I don't want to know if there's like foreign or uh, domestic, just any... I just want to know, where does everyone end up working after they leave me? Let me assess the risks from there. I think that would be much I better. Actually, I, 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 I would buy into You know, I think that the U.S. is particularly 
quick to impose criminal penalties on stuff and probably inappropriately. If you report and there is somebody actually reading those reports and asking you intelligence questions, intelligent questions, you're not likely to get in trouble. And I'm sure, you, obviously, if you if you lie about what you're doing, then you are violating the law. But I think the idea of just sort of saying, we've written a special criminal law. Why don't you come work for us? And if you do, we have a special criminal law that will apply only to you when you leave. Uh, and it's extremely it's, vague. It's, and prosecutorial <clears throat> yeah. discretion, if we don't like you, may apply. Right? Like, Right. I think I think it's super dangerous to go that path, and that's why I wanted to push back. I know I was like one of the few voices on Twitter available to push back on this law. I, I think it's important that we do so now because, as I think you said, it does have a lot of momentum. Yeah, it does. Okay, uh, uh, for people who want to see more, the, I'm the um, chairman of the board of AFIO, the Association of Foreign, Former Intelligence Officers. AFIO has a YouTube channel, and they just put a little panel discussion of the law up. Uh, and so if you want to hear more about this, you can go there and watch the video. It's it's the only known uh, video of me talking as opposed to podcast. And once you've seen that, you'll understand why. All right, Maury, I, I thought this was really interesting. The, the global anti-money laundering, what is it, the, the Financial Action Task Force has uh, rolled out some fairly tough rules. I don't think they're tough by U.S. standards, but internationally, they're pretty tough for regulating crypto, and they're getting a fair amount of pushback. How serious do you think FATF is? I think they're very serious, and I think this is a big deal. I mean, these rules basically say that they're going to apply similar money laundering standards to crypto transactions, which they call virtual assets and virtual asset service providers for the companies, you know, similar, similar standards to what they apply to other financial transactions, which includes registration and licensing of government supervision, suspicious transaction reporting, KYC on originator and recipients. This is, you know, I mean, some crypto companies are set up to be, you know, to do false payments, you know, to do anonymous payments, not false, but criminal payments. Some of them are are not, and so, you know, and but don't want to be regulated like this. And of course, they want to put. I think that this regulation is coming. Similar stuff was in the infrastructure bill, and I think is still in there. If I'm not wrong, not this detailed. And so, this is going to be a real regulatory battle. I, I, I just read today that Andreessen Horowitz, who's got bet, betting big on crypto, is doing a huge amount of lobbying in Washington. So yeah. this, is a, this is a big battle for crypto. It's going to end up with some winners and losers. And, you know, this is an important step. Well, this has been coming for a while. And this is the, the logical card to play if you're a regulator who's worried about this, is to turn it into an anti-money laundering matter so that the Countries that are tempted to, to kind of get a little close to the line or over the line realize that the, there's a price to be paid. And, and you know, the, the FATF has been very effective at getting what were tax havens to start collecting data on people who are using their banks. And so my guess is getting them to regulate in this area is... It's not falling off a log, but it's. I would guess that gravity favors the the regulators here. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're we're going that way, and there's been a lot of it. You know, in the UK, and I, and I think more generally, money laundering is defined as you know dealing with the proceeds of anything that's and so you know ransomware payments. While you might not think of them exactly as money laundering, it's a payment for something rather than taking the dirty money and doing something. Definitely fits within the definition of money laundering, and there's a clear link there. So there's lots of reasons to do stuff like this. I think ransomware is the reason why you could get this out of the FATF. Until then, there was you know there was a theoretical law enforcement thing, and the FBI was upset. But then you had all these high paid people coming in to tell you that it was going to be a brave new world with uh, cryptocurrency. But now people are looking at this and saying, "Oh, you're just you know you're making ransomware pay, and we can't have that." So I I think ransomware probably has driven more cryptocurrency regulatory enthusiasm than any other single thing. I was going to ask you because I know you got you got involved in this in part because you've got a, a startup called LearnerShape that uh, is using blockchain for a variety of things, including looking at global cryptocurrency regulation. I, what are you doing on cryptocurrency regulation for this blockchain company? Well, we, for one of the big blockchain providers, so LearnerShape, my startup is a ed tech skills company, and we're working with a big cryptocurrency company, Cardano, which has something called Project Catalyst to do a skills authentication protocol. I personally have said I'll help them take a look for, for, for a very small amount of money to look at global crypto regulation. So I've started to take an interest in this. All right. Well, this is, you know, look, you and I go back to the 90s doing uh, crypto regulation when before crypto meant cryptocurrency. Uh, and I think the most successful business venture I ever started for my law firm was maintaining a, a subscription for figuring out what encryption regulation was around the world. And you were essential to doing that. Yeah, you had me build it for you. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So let's go. Let's let's beat up the EU for a little while. They made a big deal out of how they were going to strike back with sanctions on people who attacked EU nations and EU citizens in cyberspace by hacking them. And Lawfare had a, a pretty good rundown on how they're doing on implementing cyber sanctions. And it turns out they're doing abysmally. Uh, and, and it looks as though part of it is will, which, you know, is always a problem with the EU. But a lot of it is just they don't have the tools. They don't do good coordinated intelligence operations to attribute these things. And then when they do, um, you know, they, they say, well, okay, they were attacking Poland, but we don't like Poland, so we're not going to do anything about that. And then they attack Germany and they say, oh, we got to do something about that immediately. So all of the EU dysfunction seems to have been expressed in this sanctions program. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a complex picture. I I wrote down like five reasons that sort of fit together here, which is attribution is difficult. But as you say, they're they're not coordinating on it. And sanctions in the EU much more than the U.S. are a political process. I mean, deciding we're going to sanction Iran in the U.S., that's political. But once the sanctions have been decided, the individuals who get sanctioned, it's turned over to the professionals. The EU, it's much less professional, much more political. And you've got the ECJ that has that has 
questioned a lot of these political decisions. In the U.S., there is not such review of sanctions decisions. So it's sort of a perfect storm where the regulator has gotten scared of making decisions based on limited evidence with con- with lack of coordination, and it just hasn't been used very much. But I think the power will stay there and will be used more over time because you know cybersecurity issues aren't going away. I think the bigger issue is, are these sanctions effective? I mean, the U.S., cyber sanctions and indictments haven't done a whole lot. You're right. There is absolutely a a question whether they work. So maybe the Europeans, by not even not implementing them effectively, are just demonstrating that they don't work rather than uh, failing to use a tool that might help them. Well, I I got one other uh, story that involves, say, Europe being Europe. ENISA, which is very generally the European equivalent of CISA in the U.S., uh, has said we ought to have standards for security of cloud providers, which, you know, sounds right. But I I got a tip from somebody over the week and saying, but, you know, one of the French contributions to that was to say, well, nobody is um, is to be deemed secure unless they can promise that they are absolutely immune from U.S. legal process, which strikes me as basically saying that even Deutsche Telekom, which has a it's the it's the big national champion for cloud providers, has a whopping two percent of the market. But even Deutsche Telekom does business in the United States and is therefore subject to U.S. jurisdiction. I don't quite get what's going on here. Uh, did you? It, you know, it's it's all in French, uh, so I know you read French. Did you? Uh, can you make sense of this for me? Yeah, I dove in. It was a good tip. I mean, <clears throat> what ANSI, who's the French regulator, first of all. The thing that they were proposing an amendment to is the French standard, which has been very influential towards the ANISA standard, but it wasn't a direct amendment to the ANISA standard. I I suspect that they may be pushing it in the ANISA process as well. Right, because the ANISA process said we're basically going to borrow this mainly from the German and then also from the French standards. So it, it, it is logical that they would hope it would pass right over. Yes. And and what it says is immunity from jurisdiction is defined as being owned more than 24 percent by one shareholder or more than 39 percent. Who knows where they got that number by multiple shareholders, by entities that are headquartered outside the EU. And also that you can't use any third parties who meet the same standards if they have access to the data. So they solved, they solved the problem that I was saying, which is that Deutsche Telekom is subject to U.S. jurisdiction and will have to cough up anything that Microsoft Azure has to cough up by saying, that's all right, we don't want to hear about that. We just want to say Deutsche Telekom is okay because their headquarters are here. Yeah, it's, I mean, GDPR, and there's been some interesting GDPR questions about storage outside the EU, but... From, yes, from this perspective, they basically said, no, we won't have Amazon, Azure, uh, Google Cloud, Alibaba, but yes, we'll have Deutsche Telekom. Well, uh, you know, maybe they'll get that uh, market share up to 3%. Good for them. Uh, <laughs> but they're, but probably I, happier I, I, about, is, they're probably happier about Orange than Deutsche Telekom, I'll say. Yeah, that's probably right. Uh, okay. And uh, I wanted to, th- I wrote a cartoon about this, so I, I'm bound to ask about it. Uh, but it was also, it was basically a British story. Francis Haugen, who's been beating up and leaking about Facebook now for, for weeks, had a story in an interview that she gave to The Telegraph in which 
having said all these other bad things that the, the that Facebook was doing, they're ignoring their, the harms they're causing to the adolescent uh, girls, and they're ignoring the the, the very real uh, harm they're doing to democracy. Said, oh, and they're going to encrypt a lot of stuff end to end, which means they won't be able to see the cyber espionage that's being carried out on their system, which is true. Almost immediately, she got beaten up and trashed on Twitter, and she has walked it back. And I guess the question is, I mean, the Telegraph is not the Daily Mail. I would I'd not assume that they got it wrong when they interviewed her. Yeah, I mean, a series of governments in the UK, including this current conservative government, have been really fairly robust about the going dark problem and end-to-end encryption, and the Telegraph is a conservative paper. So I, you know, they would be the paper you would expect to print this. I think, though, she got a, a bit confused. I mean, it's very different from the problems that she's been talking about. This is about Facebook's messenger service, you know, Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp and so forth. Entirely different problem. And yeah, her, her response when she figured out the problem with what she was saying from a privacy perspective became almost unintelligible. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's like a squid retreating behind a cloud of ink. It was like she'd retreating behind a cloud of words, saying, "Oh, I guess I shouldn't have said that." And I'm just going to say a lot of stuff about uh, how I just don't trust Facebook to implement this properly. And as you can see from the cartoon, that that is basically my take: is that she she realized she wasn't allowed to say it. And the Telegraph, that's interesting. The Telegraph might have felt they could say it because it's from a conservative government. Most reporters would not want to cover that story in the U.S. because there, it turns out hating Facebook is not the highest priority. Hating the FBI is a higher priority. Okay. Uh, and I think that is it for the day. So thanks, Maury. Thanks, Dave. Send us to the, to the audience. Please send us comments at cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. I haven't gotten a review in months. Come on, write a cartoon review uh, and publish it. And the cartoons are great. You like them? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I've got at least one more coming. I don't know how many more I'm going to do, but I'm, I'm trying to make humorous comments on cyber policy topics. So I don't know how much humor we can find in them, but I will find some. And I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 381 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. (laughs) 